Chapter Three of Wise and Otherwise. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Wise and Otherwise by Pansy. Chapter Three. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Doctor Douglas stirred his tea mechanically, broke his muffin into bits, but ate nothing, said nothing, only looked sadly perplexed and disturbed. His wife waited in inquiring silence for several minutes, then asked, "What is it, Doctor? Anything new?" How did you leave poor little Freddy? No better. They sent here and over to Frank's for Mr. Tresevant. Do you know whether they found him? I found him. Where? Has he been over there? They seemed very anxious. Mrs. Douglas always asked at least two questions at once, realizing perhaps how pressed her husband was for time. No, he has not been there. I found him in the Wilcox Browns playing croquet with Mrs. Tresevant and the young ladies. Silence for a moment, then Mrs. Douglas said with a belligerent air, Well, what special harm is there in playing croquet? The doctor was betrayed out of his gloom long enough to laugh and take a bite of muffin before he answered, I don't say a word against croquet, Julia. Is your conscience very tender on that point? Mrs. Douglas responded only by a conscious laugh, as she realized how entirely she had betrayed her opinions on the subject and continued her questioning. Did you tell him about Freddy and how much they wanted to see him? I did, relaxing into gloom and laconic answers. What did he say? Mrs. Douglas was entirely accustomed to cross questioning her husband and understood the process thoroughly. That he would go down there as soon as the game of croquet was concluded. The lady opposite him set down her cup that had nearly reached her lips and looked at her husband while an expression of mingled doubt and dismay spread over her face. Dr. Douglas, did you tell him the child was dying and that they had been in search of him? she said in shocked tones. I explained the latter fact to him elaborately and told him the boy was very sick and that I feared he might not live until morning. For once the ever ready tongue opposite seemed to have not a word to utter. When she found voice again, it was to ask in a very subdued way, Do they know it at the house? Know that you have found him, I mean? What do they think of it? They know that I found him, and where, for they asked me both questions. I did not enlighten them as to his occupation, and said what I hoped and believed was true, that I thought he would be along very soon. But he had not arrived when I came away a quarter of an hour ago. The game must have proved a complicated one. Now the question is, was Mr. Tresevant's heart so bound up in the game of croquet that he could not even leave it to answer a summons from the dying? On the contrary, he cared as little for croquet as it was possible for any mortal man to care for so stupid a thing. The difficulty came to pass on this wise. Three hours before this tea-table talk, Mrs. Tresevant, in a ravishing sea-green silk, sat doubled up in an ill-humored heap among the sofa pillows, while her exasperating husband walked the floor with his hands in his pockets, a thing which husbands generally proceed to doing when they wish to be especially tormenting. He talked to the little roll of silk after this fashion. I am more than doubtful as to the propriety of joining this croquet party. The small wife twitched her skein of green worsted into a hopeless snarl, and answered petulantly, Has croquet become a mortal sin? Dear me, I don't know what is to become of common humanity. There is positively nothing left that isn't wicked to do. I didn't say croquet was wicked, Laura. Don't be so childish. What is the matter with it, then? I'm sure you said you were doubtful as to its propriety. 
Carol, I am absolutely sick of that word. I don't wonder that so many clergymen lose their wives early. They die of propriety. What possible objection to croquet can you find? I don't object to it. It is a good enough game, I suppose. But there are people who don't think so. There is an old man downtown, a member of my church, too, who thinks it is only another way of playing billiards. And there are doubtless others, just as stupid, who wouldn't like to see their pastor engaged in any such frivolous way. So, for the sake of that class of people, I doubt the wisdom of joining you. The blue-brown eyes on the sofa, so soft and childlike they were, that once Mr. Tresevant thought the owner of them could be led by a word, looked upon him now enlarged to their full extent, and her voice took on a tinge of resignation. Oh, well, if you are to be governed by every old man that chances to think some absurd and ignorant thing, of course that is the end of all freedom and comfort. Only I did think that even clergymen had a right to decide for themselves in some matters. I am governed by no one, Laura, said the self-besieged clergyman, chafing under the idea that he was in leading strings. I choose to decide all questions for myself, without the interference of any one. Only, of course, there are questions of expediency to be considered, and I may not choose to place myself in an unpleasant light before any of my people. He continued his walk up and down the room with a very perturbed face. Anything but to have it hinted that he, of all men, was not master of his own actions. And there sat that tiny woman, very wise in her generation, and presently let fly the arrow that she knew would hit him at his most vulnerable point. I think it must be that Mrs. Sales has enlightened you as to her views on this subject. She has views about it, of course. She has about every earthly thing that can be imagined, and she evidently intends that you shall be led like a dutiful subject in the way she would have you go. You used to play croquet with Emmeline and me in Lewiston, and I never heard a word about propriety and expediency before, so it is evident she has been giving you directions on the subject." Mr. Tresevant paused in front of his wife, and his voice was actually harsh. "'Laura, how can you be so absurd? What possible connection can Mrs. Sale's notions on any subject whatever and my actions have with each other?' "'A great deal,' shutting her red lips together with an emphasis that made them thin and unpretty. "'I tell you, she means that you shall do as she says and thinks, like a good boy, as she imagines you to be. As for having views of your own,' She never dreams of such a thing. That is too ridiculous to listen to, answered the irate clergyman, turning testily away and recommencing his walk, the little wife meantime subsiding into silence and quietly awaiting results. Some minutes of steady walking, accompanied by furtive glances from the blue-brown eyes on the sofa. Then he halted before her again, this time speaking kindly. Laura, I did not know that your heart was so set on this frolic. It is a matter of very small importance, anyway. Of course, we will go, if you really wish it. Then the waves of green silk shook themselves triumphantly from the sofa pillows, and Mrs. Tresevant's low, sweet voice said, Oh, thank you, Carol. I do want to go. It will seem so much like home. Thus it was that the clergyman, being hunted for at every possible place, was finally espied by Dr. Douglas as he came hurriedly down Chester Street, in the Wilcox grounds with the croquet party. Mrs. Charlotte Wilcox gave a pretended scream as she saw him coming. Oh, Mr. Tresevant, where can we hide you? There comes Dr. Douglas, and he will never recover from his horror if he sees you here. 
Why, laughed Mrs. Tresevant, does he think croquet is wicked? I guess so. I never heard him mention that in particular, but he thinks almost everything is. And at this point Dr. Douglas summoned his pastor to the gate. The game was suspended, and the players gave attention to the conversation at the gate, which was by no means low-toned. That little Freddie Conklin, explained Miss Charlotte in undertone, has been sick for months, and every little while they get dreadfully alarmed about him and think he is going to die right away. The tone was not so low but that it reached Mr. Tresevant's ear. The boy is no worse than he was before, I presume? he asked inquiringly to the doctor. I cannot speak positively, of course, Dr. Douglas answered somewhat stiffly. The disease is peculiar, but he seems to be very near death. I do not think he will live until morning. Oh, dear, sighed Miss Charlotte. It is all a ruse, I believe, to get your husband out of our wicked hands. Mrs. Tresevant, I do wish you would coax him to stay until I can beat him just once. I've almost done it. Again the clear, shrill tones penetrated to Mr. Tresevant's ear, and the man who was just opening his mouth to say, I will come with you at once, checked himself, took in angrily the thought that Dr. Douglas was trying to manage him, decided that he would not be managed, no, not by anybody, and finally said with an assumption of utter nonchalance, Very well, doctor, I will be around there in the course of the afternoon. It will not do to desert the ladies just now. They might imagine themselves victors in the game. Then the doctor, who was given to showing just a little too much feeling on such occasions, turned away haughtily without another word, and the minister returned to his croquet with a very troubled spirit, and wished in his heart that every exasperating little yellow and green and red ball was split up for kindling wood. He played badly, his mind meantime being occupied with two questions. First, was the boy really so very ill, or was this one of the many false alarms that had come from the anxious parents? True, the doctor had said that he might not live till morning. Well, of course he might not. They might none of them. Could it be that the doctor, not liking his position and occupation, have contrived a plan to get him away from there? And over this thought his pale cheek flushed, and he struck the red ball fiercely, muttering to himself that if he really thought that, he would play croquet until midnight, much as he hated it. The consequence of all this was, that it was an hour after Dr. Douglas had finished his supper, and was coming downstairs from the sick boy's room, that he met his pastor going up. "'How is he now?' Mr. Tresevant asked, with an attempt at cheeriness. Beyond your care or mine, the doctor answered with grave, stern face. Not dead. Yes, sir, he died half an hour ago, and Dr. Douglas moved swiftly on. I was never so shocked in my life, Mr. Tresevant explained at the sales tea table a few minutes later. I did not dream of the boy's condition being so critical. There have been so many reports, you know, of his being about to die, I thought it was another of his sinking turns. I am very much grieved. After all, you couldn't have saved the poor child's life if you had been there, his sympathizing wife said, by way of consolation, nibbling a biscuit as she spoke. What do they say of Mr. Tresevant's non-appearance? Mrs. Sayles asked this question of Dr. Douglas an hour later, as he stood in the doorway, hat in hand, having made some arrangements with Mrs. Sayles that had to do with the comfort of the afflicted family. They are very much hurt, of course. They cannot be blamed for that. Did you make any explanation, doctor? Dr. Douglas turned around and gave her a full view of his stern gray eyes as he asked in a stern voice, 
What explanation was there to make, Abby? Their pastor was playing croquet, and did not choose to come until he finished his game, and the boy was too near heaven to wait until that momentous business was concluded. Now that is the simple truth. I saw nothing to explain. Only a few minutes after that, Mrs. Sayles went quietly down the street and stood presently in the chamber of death. Very few words she had to offer, yet her tender sympathy seemed to enter into and soften the bleeding hearts. It was when she was turning to leave the room that she said, simply and gently, I am sorry for Mr. Tresevant. The blood rolled in rich waves over the stricken mother's face, and she quickly answered, Don't mention his name to me. I don't want to hear it. Neither by word or look did the softly spoken little woman notice this remark, but continued her words very gently. He feels it very deeply, as of course he would. He hadn't an idea of the serious nature of the disease. He said he had never in his life been so shocked and grieved. But we sent for him, the mother said coldly, with averted eyes. Sent twice for him, and he was at Wilcox's playing croquet. Charlie saw him when he went for Dr. Douglas. He could have come if he had cared to. I know, but you see, he didn't understand. I think he took it as an intimation that you would like to see him some time during the day. He certainly did not take in the serious nature of the call. This time the mother sobbed out her reply amid burning tears. But Freddy wanted to see him again. He loved his pastor and mourned so because he did not come, and we had to see him die with his wish ungratified. Yes, very gently, and Mr. Tresevant loved him. He has often spoken of him, and Freddy is very happy now, has no wish ungratified. But his pastor carries a very heavy heart. I am sorry for him. No more words about that. They went out together to the sitting-room, and Mrs. Sayles moved about for a little, very quietly and helpfully, until, just as she was about to leave them, she asked quietly, Have you any direction or message that you would like me to give to Mr. Tresevant? The bowed head of the father was lifted, and he made stern answer. We have no further message of any kind for him. He has no time to attend to us. I shall call on Dr. Steele in the morning. His wife turned toward him hastily. Oh, father, no, I wouldn't. Let us have our own pastor with us. But I thought, he said in grave surprise, I thought you said you wanted it so. Well, I did, but I was hasty, I think. Don't let us do anything that looks bitter. There is some mistake about it. He would have come if he had understood, and Freddy loved him, you know. Oh, rare and precious oil poured on the troubled waters. If only the world, nay, rather, the Christian church, had a few more such characters, seeking ever to throw the mantle of tender charity over faults and mistakes, soothing into littleness and quiet the minor ills of life, instead of talking them over and ripping them apart until they grow into gaping wounds, how much could be accomplished for the cause of the master, how much bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking would be put away. End of chapter 3 Recording by Tricia G.